In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week that I'll talk about tonight, the book of the week for next week, um, although really it'll be in two weeks, which I'll explain in a moment, but the book for this week is Emotional Advantage by Randy Taran. Randy Taran, T-A-R-A-N. Emotional Advantage, Embracing All Your Feelings to Create a Life You Love by Randy Taran. The foreword is by the Dalai Lama. Um, if you've listened to me before, you probably know that that subtitle, Embracing All Your Feelings uh, to Create a Life You Love, definitely appealed to me when I saw this at the bookstore because I think that is very important to live a good life, we have to be in touch, embrace, and express all of our feelings, not just those ones that we think of as good ones, like happiness and feeling good. Sometimes life won't make us feel very good when we live life to the fullest. And so uh, I was drawn to that title, but we'll see how that book is. And as I alluded to, uh, next week I won't be in town, so I won't be doing live shows next week. So I'll be back, I think it's July 29th will be um, the next live show after Wednesday show. So I'll be here Wednesday, but then uh, July 29th, I'll do a live show where I'll talk about uh, this book and I'll introduce another book probably on Wednesday's show to um, make up for that week that's lost. And I'll talk about both of them the week that I'm back. But the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is Everything in Its Place by Oliver Sacks. Everything in Its Place, First Loves and Last Tales by Oliver Sacks. And I mentioned this last week. I was interested to read this because Oliver Sacks is, um, as a friend of mine put it, an intellectual crush of mine or someone I really admire intellectually and look at as a type of a hero or someone I'd aspire to be like. Um, but he passed away in 2015. And so this book was published after his death. And that gave me some mixed feelings because when things are published posthumously, you don't know if the author or if it's a singer or whoever it might be wanted, whatever is being published or released to be released and in that form or format. And um, I remember when the rapper Tupac Shakur was killed in the mid 90s, um, or maybe it was late 90s, I guess, that all the new music started to come out after he had died. And so it wasn't really clear where all this music was coming from, unreleased music. And at times it felt really like more of a cash grab that people were trying to make money because they knew people would want to hear 
new music, um, but really was it something he would want to be released or was there a reason it wasn't released? And so I had a similar feeling with this book that was this a book he would have wanted to be released and I don't obviously know and we can't know that. But looking at what it was, a lot of them were a collection of essays and pieces he had written before. Some of them were unpublished, but many of them had already, already been released and so it was a compilation of sorts of different writings he had done. Um, but that being said, I thoroughly enjoyed the book because there were different sections or different chapters on topics that maybe you wouldn't have thought of as being significant, things like his love of swimming or how he was always a swimmer from a young age, his love of botany and plants, especially ferns, um, museums, how he really likes museums and how important they can be, and things of that sort that were a little bit more, what can seem trivial, but still very meaningful because, uh, I, as I mentioned before, he's someone that I really admire, and in a way it felt like you were having a conversation with him, albeit a one-sided one because you could only hear him, but hearing his thoughts and some things he felt in a different way, not just constrained by talking about specific things, but various things that he's interested in throughout these different collections throughout the book. So I really enjoyed it because it felt like this intimate conversation with a great thinker, uh, and that part made it very, very uh, interesting for me. And to me, what I like about him, what I think about what I admire about Oliver Sacks is that he's a brilliant mind and very knowledgeable and he can talk about a lot of different things and in this book he talks about a variety of topics ranging a a broad array of um, different fields Um, so he's very brilliant very wise very smart knowledgeable but then also very compassionate and kind even in other books of his that i've read and in this one as well he'll talk about people suffering with severe mental illnesses dealing with neurological issues that could be quite puzzling. One of the the titles of his books is The Man Who Mistook His uh, Wife for a Hat. And so people who have some strange and bizarre neurological deficits that create um, strange and bizarre behaviors and observations. But he always talks about them with so much compassion and care and in a very humanizing way. So they are technically his patients, or he's talking about patients, but he doesn't talk about them in this way of, I'm the doctor and here's a sick person or someone who has some weird disorder, but in a very compassionate, kind and loving way that I think is very important. And even there are chapters in this book that directly relate to that. So that's something I admire in him and hope to be like being um, wise and brilliant and knowledgeable, but also having that compassion and compassion and human kindness which is, is critical. And that's something you feel very clearly when you read his work. So as I mentioned, there's uh, various chapters on some things that he enjoys and likes and why he likes them. But also in, in the middle of the book, there's clinical tales and there's some interesting ones. For example, someone that he calls Uncle Toby, who um, his family said hadn't moved much for seven years. So he's basically catatonic and wouldn't move. And eventually they brought him into the hospital and they saw that he was having severe uh, thyroid issue, hypothyroidism, a very severe form. And because of that, he was almost frozen. Metabolism was very, very low. And so they treated his thyroid condition, um, which seems like a good thing. But unfortunately, what ended up happening is then a cancer that he had began to spread. What appears to have happened is that because he was 
in this state, this catatonic state with the hypothyroidism, the cancer also could not spread. And the title of actually that chapter is Cold Storage. So it's like his whole body was almost frozen, uh, not literally, but almost. But also this meant that the cancer was frozen. But unfortunately, once they unfroze him, kind of brought him to life, so to speak, it led to his death, which is very sad. Um, but I think there's some ways of looking at that in different ways too, even as a physician or anyone who's treating someone, a clinician, we have to make sure we don't do harm or sometimes we don't know there could be unintended consequences to how we treat someone or treating someone. But that was an interesting case and a little bit bizarre, um, but again reveals the types of cases that Dr. Sachs in his several decades of work uh, encountered and, and shares throughout his various books, including this one. So there was some cases that he shared and again talks about some severe mental illnesses, but does so with a lot of compassion. Um, and related to that, I was very moved by one of the sections in the book about, he's actually talking about mental asylums or the lost virtues of the asylum is the title. And first it was interesting because that word asylum, we sometimes will hear a sane, insane asylum, and we think a place for crazy people, and it's a really bad place. But that word asylum, when we think about it, um, what it really means when we talk about refugees as a safe place and that's what they were it was a place for the mentally ill to maybe they couldn't coexist in certain areas but at least in these places in these asylums they can be i think you put it in the book or people saying as crazy as they wanted or be who they were in these settings and they didn't have to be mistreated um, also the older versions of mental hospitals or insane asylums included lots of work for the patients they would there was usually a farm and a dairy where there was maybe cows and other things that the patients would work on and this was actually very good for them to feel productive to feel that they were helping to do work to connect with nature also by doing things like farming or working with the animals but over time it was felt or that they were worried that this could be a type of exploitation or maltreatment. So they stopped doing this and actually took something away. And um, this is to me a very important point. We use this with lots of different populations, including the elderly, where we think, well, we should let them retire and not do anything. But really that could take away from their health and well-being and even contribute to their death. Feeling productive, connecting, doing something good is actually good for us. Working Although we have this connotation that if you work hard, that's bad. Hard work is actually a very good thing for us. We need that. Um, but in that section or that chapter, he talks about a Flemish town in Belgium called Giel, G-E-E-L. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. But in this town, it's very interesting. People will, in a way, adopt or take in mentally ill individuals and so it comes back from this uh, there's like a legend that Dimfna who was the daughter of an Irish king fled to Giel to avoid the incestuous embrace of her father which is what it says in this book but he, she was beheaded by him because of that but this became um, made Giel a place where the mentally ill um, were then attracted to it and she became the patron saint of the mentally ill and so people in this city take in people, and it's been happening for something like six, seven hundred years. And it's maybe less now than it once was as far as the number of families who do this, but still in that city, 
the mentally ill are treated like family and the people that adopt them take them in and treat them as such and they get to feel like they're part of a family they get to feel connected they oftentimes will work or work doing farm labor or other things but they're involved and so we see that they have a sense of connection a sense of being part of the community and they are not stigmatized there even um, dr Sachs visited the city and he said that although he traveled with members of people who worked at the hospital so they knew who the patients were you couldn't tell who the mentally ill were who the patients were from everyone else because they weren't treated less than human so he said he says uh, in this chapter they were respected as fellow beings treated with affection and care and unfortunately in the community at large or in today's society most cities the mentally ill are very much dehumanized and treated as less than human and so in this chapter he was showing how important it is and what difference it makes when we take away the stigma when we don't think of the mentally ill as somehow bad or use terms like crazy or use terms that make them seem like they're less than human or somehow it's their fault it's through no fault of their own that they are suffering in this way and we don't have to judge them or make them feel bad and actually we might think we can't include them in our communities but this city is showing us that very much we can and how good it can be for them for their own for their their well-being so it's the more more humane thing to do and also leads to better treatment outcomes or outcomes for these individuals and leads to them being more contributing members of society so really a win-win but i was very touched by that chapter in the description of this town and how um, they treated the mentally ill without stigma and with respect and human decency and how important that can be and really helpful it could be to them so that was really interesting and then the last segment of the book uh, you can tell some of them and when i looked it up there was some of the writings that were closer to his death uh, and one of them included, for example, uh, a chapter called Reading the Fine Print. And he talked about how much he enjoyed reading books, but he doesn't want, he even writes them out a Kindle or a Nook or an iPad. He wants to read from actual books. But unfortunately, his vision had been deteriorating at the end of his life. and It was harder for him to read books. And he was always in search of books with large print. And he said it was very hard to come about books with large print that he could actually read and how much he missed that and how much he enjoyed and he actually used magnifying glasses to help him read but he said that was not the same um, of course i'm not fortunately dealing with any vision issues but i could definitely relate to him and what he was saying of enjoying reading the actual book rather than uh, reading it from a tablet or he also talks about audiobooks and he doesn't say it's wrong or bad but that people can have different preferences and it is a different experience but i really enjoy reading the actual books myself and in the books of the week i've done in the over two and a half years i've been doing it i've had every one of them a physical copy and that really has been much more meaningful to me um, he even mentioned something i had never thought of but you know people say well you can have someone read the book to you or do an audiobook but it's not the same thing he said because when you're reading you at times want to go back and reread the same sentence or go to the paragraph before and make a connection or make sure you read something right or whatever it might be that and you don't have that same freedom and flexibility when someone is reading to you or even when you have an audiobook that's harder to do as well but it's not the same experience and i definitely agree with that um, so i could connect with him there absolutely uh, he also shares a very touching story of 
going to the Toronto Zoo and meeting an orangutan. And this um, primate is nursing a baby, but when he sees, when she sees him, uh, walks up to the glass and they have this very intimate and interesting encounter together where he feels a kinship and connection with this orangutan and says he feels um, as if she recognized him as a fellow primate. And he, he had an interesting connection there, which I think that story is a very short chapter, if you want to call it that, um, is a touching story of that interaction that he had. Uh, he talks about the importance of gardens and how meaningful they can be for people in general, but especially the mentally ill as well. Um, and so several other interesting, touching chapters throughout the book, but the book closes with a chapter called Life Continues. And at times it's a little bit heartbreaking and pessimistic. You can see that Dr. Sachs is heartbroken and even concerned and worried about the fate of the world in some ways. He does talk about something that is cliche, but so important that people are so hooked on their phones and other devices that they're not as connected to each other. They're not um, interacting with each other in ways that we would, we used to do and we were forced to do, so to speak. He talks about the difference between information and knowledge. And so with the internet, we have access to all this information, but really knowing things can be different. And, and that was interesting too, but he is very concerned about this. And I agree with him that we see a lot of disconnection in what's going on and people getting more and more connected to their phones or looking at their phones, but disconnecting to one another and losing lots of interactions or human interactions and human moments with each other because of this. And I think we are seeing the consequences and we'll continue to see that. And something I always talk about is making sure our phones, our devices are being used for connection, both to ourselves and with other people, rather than disconnection. And that is at times a blurry line, but one that each of us needs to look at to see, am I actually getting more disconnected from myself and others because of my device or phone? Or is it actually aiding me in some ways? And that involves making sure we use our phones in a way that allows us to connect more, but make sure we don't waste opportunities to be with one another. Um, but the book closes with him. He is a little bit concerned and worried about some things, but he does have some optimism, But he and he thinks that science can be helpful. And he says, uh, only science aided by human decency, common sense, far-sightedness and concern for the unfortunate and the poor offers the world any hope in its present morass. And I thought that was a very nice closing and also represents him very well, that the science, uh, having science, but also caring about the unfortunate and the poor, having human decency, something we saw in him, a very brilliant man, but who also was very kind, saw every human being as a human, not just a patient with symptoms or some disease, but as having a whole being. Uh, and I think that's very much worth respecting. And so because of that, I'd recommend this book to just get some more insights of him and his mind and how he thinks. That was Oliver Sacks' book, Everything in Its Place, First Loves and Last Tales. All right, reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Back in the first segment, I was talking about the book, Everything in Its Place by Oliver Sacks. And I mentioned how uh, something I really admired about him is how he would talk about his patients and how you can even see he interacted with 
his patients, not as some um, sick person or someone with a disease, but more as a whole person, an individual trying to understand them at a deeper level, connect with them at a deeper level, and see how he can actually help them by incorporating all of who they were into the treatment and understanding of who they were. And it made me reflect on my own mindset when it comes to working with individuals or thinking about people and also reflecting on my experience that I had uh, now, it's maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, doing a one-year internship at a psychiatric hospital and how meaningful that experience was. Even though I don't anticipate working in a psychiatric hospital in my career, it's possible that comes up, but it's not something that I see happening anytime soon. I got a lot from that experience in understanding mental illness, but then not just mental illness, but being human and seeing the various aspects of what it means to be human. Because I didn't know what to expect. And going in, there was fear of working with severely mentally ill patients. What does that mean? I heard stories in our trainings of things we have to be aware of that you can... Uh, see fights between the patients, but also they might attack you or you might have to be ready for that. Or even if they do bite you, how to respond and what to do if something you see is concerning or whatever else it was that they felt we needed to know. And really they had to prepare us, of course, but all this contributed to me feeling very, in some ways, afraid and unsure and having anxiety of what it was going to be like. And so I remember my first weeks or maybe even months, I was much more on edge and looked at the patients that I was working with in a way of that is a mentally ill individual and that's another mentally ill individual. And in that way, it was as if their mental illness defined who they were and that's all they were. And that's a lot of times what we do with people with mental illnesses or even when we have any kind of prejudice or discrimination against a group, that's how we see them. We see them all as the same those people or that group or whatever else it might be. It could be a religious group. It could be sexual orientation, ethnicity, uh, in this case, mental illness. We assume that they're all the same. Um, I also had this experience when I volunteered at a school for deaf children in Costa Rica, where at first all the kids were just deaf children. That's a deaf child. That's a deaf child. That's a deaf child. And that's all I could see. But once I was there for a few days, I started to in some ways, first of all, get used to that aspect of the kids and of the, the children of the school, but even more started to see other sides to their personalities and who they were. And so it wasn't this deaf child and that deaf child. It was this child who likes to joke around and make little, com little you know, um, funny movements to make me laugh. And this child who likes for me to give them a hug and is more touchy in that way and wants that type of connection or this other one who's a little bit more shy. And so their personalities started to become the most important and salient things about them, not that they were deaf. And so at the psychiatric hospital, I went through a similar experience where at first it was these individuals who many of them were dealing with serious mental illnesses. And so that was most of what I saw. But over time, uh, I'm happy that I was able to connect to them more to more hum at a human-to-human -human level rather than therapist and patient or uh, therapist and um, someone who's been hospitalized or s person who has sanity and someone who does not, even though that's definitely is a harsh generalization because people were dealing with different things in the hospital. But there wasn't this difference so much. And I was very moved by 
some aspects of working with the patients who, for example, some of them who were dealing with schizophrenia, you could see that there was almost this sense that they were overwhelmed by things, that things were overwhelming for them, um, maybe because they were hearing and seeing things, so they had some hallucinations or their delusions were contributing to that. And maybe just overall, there was more of a sensitivity. And I would see that shine through that at times they were able to express empathy or pick up on things at a level that was very touching. Also, there was something childlike about them at times. And I was recounting a story today. Of, I remember one patient coming up to me and I must have looked very tired and because of his comments but he looked at me and said oh your your eyes are red did, did you do a lot of drugs and i was just really shocked and taken aback by his comment i was like excuse me he's like yeah, yeah your eyes are red did you do a lot of drugs and i said oh no i think i i didn't get enough sleep and then he just responded oh oh not enough sleep yeah not enough sleep and even the way he said that was very caring like he actually cared about me and um wanted to know if i was okay and even his comments of do you did you do a lot of drugs? Wasn't in any way to make me feel bad or judge me or say something that make me uncomfortable. It's just what he, he could tell. And he was actually right. I'm sure being in grad school, especially, I wasn't getting enough sleep some nights. And he picked up on that and he just shared how he felt. But there was a care and compassion in how he expressed that that was actually quite kind and it was very sweet. And again, there was almost a childlike quality to it that there wasn't this filter in what he was saying, but also that he was very perceptive and, and connected to me. And so this was quite an experience for me to interact with these patients several times a week. I would, I think, go three days a week. And to see that although we might try to think of some people as so different from us, uh, they really aren't so different. And even we could say sometimes there are differences, of course. We don't want to ignore the differences and pretend like every human being is the same because that's not what I think we should be going for. But that different doesn't necessarily mean bad. And especially different doesn't mean needs to be treated poorly or dehumanized or become less than human. We can be different in lots of ways, but none of those ways has to be uh, something that results in we us treating people as worse or not as good. And so the mentally ill are one of those groups or in some ways one of those last groups where treating them poorly or dehumanizing them still seems okay to a lot of people or to society at large to talk about them in a negative way or to think of them as somehow bad or not um, like the rest of us, definitely a them. Uh, that's something that unfortunately still exists very strongly. And there are definitely people who are suffering. And as I mentioned, I think in the previous segment, they're suffering through no fault of their own. We know that a lot of these illnesses are due to a genetic predisposition and also related to things like their upbringing and trauma and different things they've experienced. But no one chooses to have schizophrenia or chooses to have bipolar disorder. It is an illness that they have and they have to now deal with. And we have the choice of dealing with them with more compassion and affection and kindness or to judge them as somehow different or bad or even evil as sometimes it's been thought of in, in history or even still uh, evil in some way or somehow immoral when it's not that way at all. Also, there is this myth of people with severe mental illness that we have to be afraid of them, you know, the crazed gunmen or, um, you know, how we have to be scared of people with schizophrenia because they're going to attack you or do something to you. Uh, where I did mention in the psych hospital, we had to be 
wary of things. Um, but overall, we know that people who suffer from severe mental illnesses are much more likely to be the victims of a violent crime than to actually commit a violent crime themselves. So we might think that they are scary and crazy and we have to be afraid of them, but really that's not the case and not the reality. And another unfortunate myth that exists that makes it even harder for people to show compassion and love to them because we think we have to be afraid of them. We have to avoid them because they're going to do something to us. And so that's why I was very moved amongst other parts of that chapter. I was talking about that Belgium city of Giel or Giel, G-E-E-L, uh, where they will take in individuals who are mentally ill to live with them to even help in raising the kids and to be involved with the home and part of the family, that they don't see them as some scary, uh, bad people that have to be kept away. They actually want to take them in. And Dr. Sachs actually asked, well, why do you do that? Why do you take someone in? Because I'm sure to many people here who are listening and who have a family, if someone mentioned to you to adopt a mentally ill individual to live with you, you would you would think they were crazy and call them that if they said that to you. But the people said, why wouldn't we do this? And their grandparents and parents and further generations back did the same thing and they felt like it was a good and right thing to do and mutually beneficial. They would get something from them and hopefully helping that individual as well. And so I was very moved by that chapter and also um, Dr. Sachs's approach in general of showing compassion and seeing people as whole individuals that deserve to be treated as whole individuals and to live a full life including having work if possible and connecting with people and having a community. And we have to think about our own mindset when it comes to dealing with the mentally ill and how much we see them as different or bad um, or crazy or someone we don't want to interact with in any way. And those misconceptions and the ways we treat them does have an impact on how they're treated in general and in society at large, and we want to change that. So part of the stigma of mental illness or reducing the stigma of mental illness, there's of course making it okay for people to talk about feelings, to talk about um, going through things like depression or having anxiety, to talk about going to see a therapist. I try to bring it up every so often, so I'll bring it up again. I go to therapy myself almost every week, actually every week, except I'm thinking about this week, I won't be here the day that I go, so I won't be able to go, but I think it should be okay. And we should be talking about going to therapy as if it's something very okay, because it definitely is. Um, but people are afraid to talk about these types of things because of the stigma that's attached. So there's that side of it, but also the stigma largely affects those who are dealing with severe mental illnesses where we see them as somehow different and we still have a long ways to go to reduce that stigma or that aspect of the stigma that people who are dealing with a severe mental illness or like people who are dealing with a severe physical medical illness and we give those people lots of love as we should and support and care about them but somehow when it comes to mental illness people who are severely mentally ill we think we should be somehow judging them or treating them poorly and i really hope that does change because it's very unfair and it's an injustice to these people who are suffering and need more help and support and unfortunately when we stigmatize them in this way it makes it less likely that we'll do things like it's hap is happening in that small belgium town where we are interacting with people who have severe mental illnesses as fellow human beings because that's what they are all right, going into our last commercial break, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. We'll be right back. Mm -hmm. 
back. Wanted to change gears a little bit. I get a lot of questions from people um, asking as uh, parents or family members, how should they be involved and how should they help their kids, their adult children when they are trying to get married or in their relationships? And the answer to that in a very quick way is less is usually more. Um, and I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more, but um, the analogy that came to my mind just recently related to how parents, especially, but family should think about their involvement um, or the way we should want to be evaluated is kind of like if you watch sports and how we evaluate the referees. And the way the referees are essentially evaluated is that if you're talking about them, there's a problem because usually it means they made a bad call, they made a mistake, or they, they did something that affected the game in a way that we think is unfair or not right. What really we, we want, or when they've done a good job, unfortunately in a way for them, is when we don't talk about them, when they haven't made a big impact on the outcome. And so parents should think of their involvement in the same way. If there's too much that's being affected by what you've done, if it's becoming too much the topic of conversation or the issues at hand involve the parents or you yourself or you and your husband or your wife, you should be concerned or you should think that's not good. Your goal in a way is to not be involved. There's not a lot of good you can do. There's a lot more bad you can do. And to keep that in mind is to not do the bad things, to not interfere in some negative way. So just like a referee doesn't want to be talked about after the game because that means they probably messed something up, as parents you should think the same way. If we're doing our job right, we're not going to have and we're going to have very little impact on the outcome. Our ideal should be that. Now that being said, of course, you can help in some ways, albeit usually smaller ways, to your children in their process. But this also depends on a few things. And most important to that is the relationship you have with your children. So when we give advice to people, one of the most important things is the relationship we have with that person and some important aspects of that relationship. One is how much they feel we care about them they feel we're connected to them and they feel like we understand them, we get them. So we have to feel this feeling of safety and comfort to want to get advice from someone, but also we have to feel like they understand us if we want to get their advice. So if you feel like someone doesn't get you at all and who you are and who you want to be and they start giving you career advice, you don't care what they have to say because you don't think they get you. And also you don't feel comfortable with them. And then also related that as a, to that is how much you respect them and what they have to say. So in that same vein, if someone comes to give you career advice and you don't respect how they've been in their own career or what they've done or the decisions they've made, you're not very likely to want to get their advice. So as much as we'd like to think that the only thing that matters when we receive advice is how good the advice is, of course, that's not the case. If I tell you, here's this doctor and she recently graduated from Harvard and she has years of experience in this certain field and now we're going to hear what she has to say you're going to take that very differently than if i say oh this same medical advice was some from some 12 year old 
that just said it yesterday. You're going to take it very differently. We'd like to think we don't care, but we do care how much we respect that individual and we do care how much we respect that person in the sense that we feel like they care about us and they understand us. And so a lot of times parents will complain, oh, I tell my child to study more, or exercise more, or do this more, or do that more. Um, and so first of all, the problem is giving advice itself when it's unsolicited is a big problem. But then the second part is a lot of times the advice can be good advice. It's not that what you're saying is bad. It's not bad to read more or to exercise more. But if your child doesn't have a good relationship with you, they're very unlikely to take your advice, or we can say it's much less likely that they will take your advice. And so if you want to be a positive influence in anyone's life, it's not about coming up with the best speeches or like a PowerPoint presentation or a TED talk that's going to move them. What's more important is to have a good relationship with them. If they feel connected to you, comfortable with you, and they feel like you understand them and they also respect you and what you have to say and the way you think, then they're much more likely to come to you and want to hear what you have to say when it comes to advice. So, that's one very important point. And then related to that, as I've alluded to, is unsolicited advice is not uh, generally not going to be helpful. So what that means is if someone doesn't ask for your advice, you shouldn't be giving your advice, except for in the extreme cases. But so just going up to someone and saying, hey, you need to do this or do that, most people are going to get defensive and not going to hear what you say, and it's not going to go very well. If it's part of a conversation, part of a good relationship, that goes differently. And so... You look at your kids a lot of times and you think, oh, I should tell them to do this or don't do that or do it this way or that way. Or from my experience, I've done all these things. When they haven't asked you for advice, you generally should not give that to them. And related to this is another important point I try to make often, which is that make sure with your children, even from a very young age, but especially as they get older, that you're having conversations, that it's a dialogue and not a monologue. So if you find yourself talking for five minutes straight to your child about some topic, that's not going to usually go well. And that's more of a lecture and a monologue rather than a dialogue and a conversation that has some back and forth. And usually that means the person is not listening to you much anyway, and he's just finishing or waiting for you to finish what you have to say, to stop talking, because they're just like, this is going nowhere. This is a waste of time. And let me just let this person finish their talking, however long it takes, and then I'll go. But really it's going in one ear and out the other. So those are a few things to be aware of. Now, another important aspect when it comes to relationships in general, but if you're saying, I want to be a positive impact or influence um, in my child as they develop and try to find someone as they're dating and, and starting a relationship, is you have to be aware of how judgmental you are and how easy you make it for them to come tell you things. So if they start telling you, I'm dating someone, and you immediately get very critical of certain aspects of the person they bring up, or you show that you regularly um, are judging the people they talk about, oh, she did this, or what does his family do, or what do they this, and what is that, and then already show some reactions of, oh, that's not good, or that's not a good sign, or this is bad, or I don't think you should be with someone like that, or our family would never marry someone like that for whatever reason that 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 is, um, you're already creating a dynamic where your child won't be as comfortable telling you things. Because you are responding in such a judgmental way, you're not making it comfortable for them to talk to you. So this goes back to that idea of we have to have 
comfort with the person if we want to get advice from them, but also just to get their advice or seek their counsel in various topics, we want to feel comfortable with them. And if you show judgment, you're not going to make that person feel comfortable. And so I hear it all the time from parents. They say, I tell my kid, you can tell me anything. You can tell me anything you want, no matter what it is. You can tell me anything. I want you to feel totally open. I'm your friend. I'm here for you. Tell me whatever you want. But then when the child tells them something, they start to judge them. They fight them. They punish them. And so the child thinks, okay, you told me one thing, but your actions show me something completely different. If you're saying I can tell you anything, you have to show me that I can tell you anything, meaning I can tell you anything, and you respond in a way that doesn't make me feel judged or put down or looked down upon. doesn't mean you have to say everything they do or say is good and get excited even when they do something that maybe is negative, but the judgmentalness is going to make them close off. The more you judge, the less you're going to hear. The more you make them feel bad about things they share with you, the less they're going to tell you. And we're all that way. That's part of human nature. Again, going back to the feeling of comfort we need to have. We need to feel safe to talk to someone, to seek their counsel, to open up to them. So hopefully you can create that type of relationship with your child and respond in such a way. And then they maybe will come to you and say, you know, I'm dating someone. And so you want to listen to what they have to say first. So rather than getting out your list of questions and say, well, what does she do? What is this? What is that? What do you want to do? What do the parents do? And all the other questions you might have in your mind, your curiosity is understandable, but give your child the chance to tell you what is going on. Tell about who they are, what's going on, how serious it is and all the other things that are there. And then you can create a conversation, make sure now it doesn't turn into an interrogation, but let them share with you the different things that is going on. And slowly, uh, they might be able to tell you what's happening and get you involved. Maybe you meet them. Um, one thing I've seen a lot in families is that they think, well, I don't like who they're dating, so I shouldn't meet them because that's my way of showing I accept the relationship. And I very much disagree with this. I know it's a very common practice, but if you don't approve or you don't like who they're dating by pretending it's not there, doesn't make it disappear. And if anything, a lot of times what you do is something we can call the Romeo and Juliet effect, which is you push them more towards them. And because they feel like they don't have you anymore, oftentimes they will move more towards that individual. So when you come off very judgmental and harsh, you're actually more likely to get the results it seems like you don't want, which is for them to end up with that person. I've seen it happen so many times where um, a family will be fighting over who their son or daughter is dating and saying, we don't accept him or her and we can't believe it and we would never do this or that or we'll disown you. And, and then the person is defending their partner. No, he's so great. She's great. She's the best person. I can't believe you're saying all these things. You don't know how much I love this person, all these things. And then when you talk to the person one-on-one -on -one when the family is no longer there, they actually start to share things they are worried about in the relationship, or maybe they're not happy at all in the relationship and they feel very stuck because they're unhappy. They're going through a tough time, but then also they feel like they can't tell their family anything because the family is so against the relationship that they're going to judge it even further, make them feel worse, tell them, I told you so, and say that you have to break up now. And really they're not sure what they want to do yet.
So unfortunately, what you also do when you come off very judgmental is you remove yourself as an ally for your child. And this is true when it comes to who they date and their relationships, but just in general. If your child talks to you about trying a cigarette or e-cigarette and you respond so harshly and over the top that they get scared and they don't know what you're going to do to them, well, guess what? If they ever find themselves addicted to something like that, they probably won't come to you. They're going to be too afraid of how you're going to react. And now you've removed yourself as an ally and support for your child. They won't feel like they can come to you to get support. And that's unfortunately going to push them more towards riskier behavior or seeking help and support from other people. And that can maybe end much worse than if they were actually able to use you as an ally. And most parents would love to be there for their kids, but you have to realize that you have to create the dynamic and create the relationship where they can come to you. It's not just something that should be expected that, well, I'm your father, I'm your mother, you should come to me no matter what. No, you have to create that. And so when it comes to who they date, hopefully you have a good relationship with them and they might want your input. And even with that, you want to be careful because if you share it too strongly first of all it can affect things in negative ways but if it's some negative things be aware that this could be your future son-in-law or daughter-in-law and this might be the person that they are with and if your son or daughter is very close with whoever they're dating they might say some of what you've said to them i think they need to be careful about how they share it but it might go to them and that can affect the relationship so be mindful of how you talk about anyone that your son or daughter is dating i know a lot of times parents and Iranian parents, for example, where they think that no one's good enough for my son and daughter or daughter, and they'll show that in the way they respond to whoever they date. But be aware of that. Your part, your child, they're probably great, but they deserve to be with someone who's great as well. And you might think your child is better than everyone else, but that's not true. And they want to be with someone and they deserve that. So don't approach it with the mindset that no one is good enough. Yes, you want someone who's good, but most important is not good enough as in who they are on paper. But what's most important is how they treat your son or daughter, because that's going to be what makes them happy or unhappy is how much love and care they give them, how respectful they are of them. And those more important things and how do they look on paper or how will it look to other people? If you find yourself getting caught up there, whether you're the individual yourself in a relationship or a parent, you're going down the wrong road. What's important is how they'll be treated and the relationship they create with one another, how not how other people are going to see it. So if you're a parent and you want to help your kids or you want to know what your role should be, your role should be minimal. You again, don't want to create problems. Unfortunately, it happens so much. Like a good referee in a match or a game, you want to be as invisible as possible. When you do your job right, you don't affect things too much and no one's talking about you and what you've done because you haven't done much to affect the game. If you are being talked about too much, that means you're probably affecting things in a very negative way. You're making some mistakes. Having a relationship, creating a relationship in a healthy and happy marriage is hard enough even in the most ideal of circumstances. As parents, you want to make sure you don't add to this stress and difficulty by creating obstacles and challenges for your son and daughter and whoever they are dating. Give them that space to create that relationship. Try to be a loving um, parent to your child and parent-in-law to whoever they are dating and whoever they marry, but don't try to do too much. And if you think you're supposed to be doing more, usually less is actually the solution. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone who's listening. You've been listening to In Session to, with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Have a wonderful night.